Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And what are we talking about, Matt? The intermediate state. What happens when you die? Are you asking me? Because I, I can answer it. Oh. You cease breathing. This what? Yeah. It pauses the flow of liquids. <laughs> I remember that one. That was, uh, yeah, I, I, I yeah, you know, yeah, well. we we we're pastoral ministry become acquainted with death, and you know, somebody comes up, he died, his liquids paused or ceased. <laughs> yeah. Sure, but <laughs> I need comfort. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> so anyway, that's what we're talking about. Um, so yeah, the, with that, we are still in Systematics 3 uh, and have uh, officially begun our foray into eschatology and specifically here, death. Uh, last time we talked about the inevitability and reality of death, um, kind of how it's defined, uh, at least in recent days in uh, the West. Um, and our conclusion was, Death can simply be defined, though, as separation. Uh, when it comes to physical death, uh, separation of the material from immaterial aspects of the human. S- spiritual death is separation of life from God. And then eternal death is separation from life itself, uh, or we can just say true life. Or uh, separation from God, which is who is true life. life right? right. And so today— Did, uh, by, by the way— yes. We'll, we'll get into this when we get into hell, but I'm going to forget. So I was thinking about that, that sin and death are cast into the lake of fire mm-hmm. as well as all who are um, outside of Christ, right? And I, I, I was reflecting that our whole life here, we deal with sin, we deal with the effects of sin. It was in light of my sermon. I preached Sunday, and, and then I thought, you know, Hell is not where you're going to deal with sin, though. What you're going to deal with in hell is an eternity of nothing but the pure, infinite fullness of God's wrath. Yeah, It's not that like they throw you into the depths of hell and it's just a cauldron of sin and you're swimming in the fullness of the sin. It itself is in hell. Mm-hmm. Um, rather, it's—and I thought, what a horrifying— Thing because and and how that is truly death. That's what death is. It's it it it's now under this this eternal condemnation of God. I just something I was thinking about. I'm, yeah, it's it's separation from any sense of grace. Yeah, and goodness. There'll never be that drop of cool Relief. liquid on your tongue, right? Like, right? Or it, that, there'll never be that day that no matter how bad your day was that you wake up and you smell uh, the smell of spring or you have a... I was thinking, I was petting my dog this morning um, and he comes up to get his ritual back scratch 
and but he buried his face into my neck, and um, and and I just the pleasure that came with that of just he's a good dog and yeah. Um, again, you, yeah, we're, we're unbelievers are filled with these points of grace, and yeah, they it will be just gone, gone, and and we can't even con- at least I can't I can't conceive of it, um, other than crud that <laughs> that can't end well. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, go ahead. And and oh. no hope. Right. Right. So I, I, I think about, like, it, for example, if you get really sick, you go to a hospital, and though you're in pain and it's not fun and it's a little bit scary, it's like you still have the grace of this thing called a hospital. And mm-hmm. then with that, there's hope. Right? Yep. I mean, you don't know which way it's going to go, but there's still hope. Yep. In hell, it's just not. Well, and that's the evil of purgatory. Yeah is that there's countless people right now in purgatory thinking this is just purgatory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're not in purgatory. They're, I think I said they're in purgatory. They're not. They're eternally separated from God. The only other time they're going to see God is on Judgment Day, and then it gets even worse. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Anyhow. So with that encouraging thought <laughs> for you, uh, <laughs> today we're going to talk about the intermediate state, um, which is something that um, not a lot of people – know about, but a lot of people wonder about. Um, and so most Christians think that when they, when, when believers die, they go straight to heaven and then that's it. Like right. I'm in heaven now. Um, it will be joy. It'll be happiness forever in that same existence. Um, that statement is both true and not true. Um, conversely, a lot of Christians think that when an unbeliever dies, they just go to hell. That is just plain not true. Right. Um, rather, before the final heaven and final hell, there's something referred to as what is often called in theology the intermediate state. Uh, and there is a lot going on in this state, and the Bible has some things to say about it. So let us just give you a quick definition, quick. Um, what is the intermediate state? Well, it's the state or condition of people between their physical death and the return of Jesus Christ when their bodies will be resurrected. Um and there's things going on there. Uh, it's not, you're not just in well, heaven, the yeah. final heaven, and you're not in hell, the final hell. Sure. That the return of Jesus will be the resurrection up from the dead of all believers, but the return of Jesus Christ won't be the resurrection of the damned until the final judgment, is it? The the second resurrection? Yeah. He, uh, yeah, that's fair. All right. Well, then that's not completely correct, is it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, d- define from, well, the return of Christ is a complex event. Okay, I got you. I got you. Um, so, I retract. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you you were sweating there, I could tell. <laughs> no, I was trying to figure out what you're talking about, but no, I understand what you're saying. Dude, I am always on topic. <laughs> C. Let me give you some inadequate views of the intermediate state. Um, uh, The first one is something referred to as soul sleep. No one, anybody has believed that? Uh, I mean, personally? No. Yeah. In in my town in Idaho, um, you had two major groups. You had the Mormons and you had the uh, Seventh-day Adventists. And the Seventh-day Adventists hold to soul sleep. And so I was like, what? Yeah. 
That's why I say here the seventh Adventists. Yeah. I was just asking if you personally oh. knew. I thought, <laughs> golly, pull your claws in. <laughs> I don't have any. I bit them all out. <laughs> oh, that's right. Uh, okay. Um, so, all right. What? Gosh, everyone's already <laughs> signed off. Um, what is soul sleep? This is a position that states that the soul between death and the resurrection uh, reposes into a state of unconsciousness. Um, so who holds to this? Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> yes. There's others too, but I can't remember who else. There are others, yeah. Um, support for this view. Uh, several passages in Scripture refer to death as sleep. So Acts chapter 7, verse 60, 1336, verse Thessalonians 4, 13 through 15. And some Old Testament passages seem to indicate that dead people do not have a conscience after existence, uh, such as Psalm 115, Isaiah 28, 17 through 19. Um, problems with this view, though, uh, Scripture refers to people having consciousness between their death and the resurrected bodies. So, a classic example is um, Luke 16, 19 through 31, where you have that parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, the caveat with that passage, though, is it's it is notoriously debated. Yeah, it's um, a parable because it's so. simply a parable. Um, so the question is, is it necessarily accurate to what's going on? Um, what, is it was it intended to reveal the true nature of the intermediate state? In other words, or is there something else happening? What's your position on that personally? I've never asked you. Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't have one because it's not the point of the passage. Right. Unfortunately, though, it always comes up mm -hmm. in this discussion because I, I personally, for whatever value this brings, um, hold that it is an accurate description because in all of the uh, other parables, Christ is not drawing from imaginary Things. He, he actually is drawing from real life experiences that the people would understand. The purchase of a field, a pearl, the parable of the soils, right? They're all, they're all, they're not, none of them are saying, I have no idea what he's talking about. And so for him to randomly choose that one. Um, and then the second one that I hear people say, well, no, he's merely accommodating them with the common myths that the Jews had at that time. So he uses that in a a parabolic manner to make his point. I'm like, I've never seen Christ accommodate anything. Yeah, I, I wouldn't hold it. <laughs> and that, so, yeah. with that, I'm I'm like, I'm I I think I'm on better ground defaulting to it is what it is. He says it. Granted, it's in a parable, and that's not the point. Is he's not trying to teach on those, but he does draw from those. And I I'm I'm more. I think I'm on a safer ground just accepting that. But so anyhow, that's my own way of. It is hard to be definitive, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would if I had to default and someone forced me to take a position, that would be probably what I would do. But if I was preaching it... You're going to have to deal with what it actually is about. Right. And and then have all the people afterwards come up and, and say, yeah, yeah, question. yeah, I know, but what? <laughs> it's, like, it's not the point. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, that's the one that is commonly raised, though. Um, right. But it's I'm 
my position, it's difficult to be definitive. Uh, Hebrews 12, 23, the writer there gives us a vision of worship going on in heaven. Right. Uh, and what does he say? He says that they are spirits or disembodied souls of righteous people made perfect. Um, Revelation 6, 9, uh, you have that image of the souls of the martyred saints as they're crying out and longing for justice. Uh, they, they don't yet have their bodies, but they clearly demonstrate a consciousness. Um, so how should we understand the idea of, of sleep then as it's being used in the New Testament? Um, well, it's simply a euphemism for Christians who have died. Uh, you'll never see that concept used to talk about unbelievers uh, who have died. It's always in reference to Christians. And built into the that term is the notion that they will rise again to true life. And I think it's really emphasizing the body is asleep. You know, they take it as soul sleep, but it's like, no, there's no evidence of that. What's asleep is the body. It's now dead. That material aspect. But the immaterial is present with Christ with the promise that he will be, the body will be raised to life and in that sense awaken. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a euphemism. Yeah. It's a good yeah. word. And it, what it does is he's using that language because it really does offer the people hope. And if you remember yeah. what's going on in that First Thessalonians 4 passage, they're all saying, we've missed it. Yeah. We've missed the coming. Yeah. We've missed the, and Paul is trying to remind them, no, they're merely asleep in Christ. They yes. shall be raised. Encourage one yes. another with these words. Yeah. Um, so, however, um, to, your, to read into the term that it must mean unconscious soul sleep would be a leap. Yeah. And my argument is it has no support. All right. So, in all of that also is the idea of a how, how do you say this? Mon monistic. I, I would say monistic, but I'm like, maybe it's monistic. Monistic anthropology. Monism simply is the attribution of oneness or singleness to some concept. Like mono. Yeah. The kissing disease? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> well, then why do you give me these things? Well, uh, I assume our audience is far more mature than no, I'm not. my fellow podcasters. At 60, I'm still a child. Um, this, this, though, this concept of monism, it's a growing phenomenon that states that you are nothing more than your body. Uh, it's a materialistic view because it states that the only aspect of being human is that which is physical. There is no immaterial aspect. Now, that flat out is contrary to Scripture. In fact, we would tell you to go back and listen to our previous episode on death, but also the theological anthropology that we've discussed in the, in the past as well. So evangelicals who hold to this view escape it with the following. They'll say something like, uh, even though the person is dead, God remembers the person during this time in which there is no existence of them in either physical or spiritual sense. In other words, the person lives on, but only in the mind of God. Golly, that is bad. <laughs> Second, when Jesus returns, he will remember that person and put them back together. So again, it's a purely materialistic perspective. Uh, there is no such thing as soul. They, they follow the perspective of certain physical neurologists who view a person only in this way. They point to how when a person thinks different things, in other words, computational thoughts, childhood memories, praising God, etc., different parts of the brain heats up with energy and therefore everything can be explained as merely physical. 
However, this actually explains absolutely nothing in terms of consciousness. It's extremely unsatisfying, not to mention it overtly flies in the face of the uh, ample scripture, scriptural evidence for the reality of the soul. Yeah. Um, so, first view is everything's asleep in some way, though vaguely your soul's in existence. Uh, this view is just there's none of that. You just completely yeah. go away in every aspect. And then when God comes back, he'll, in his mind, remember you. Uh, another one is purgatory. Um, this is a state of temporary punishment for certain people who have departed this life in the grace of God, but are not entirely free from what are called venial sins or have not yet fully paid the satisfaction due to their transgressions. So obviously this is Catholic theology. Um, and so in Catholic eschatology, um, they state that there's essentially three destinies. First, there's people who die in a perfect state of grace. These are those who are fully purified from their sins. Their souls immediately go into heaven. And this now is the eternal state. Uh, that's very rare and only a few achieve that. It'd be like sainthood. Yeah. Um, something like that. Uh, second, um, there are then people who die with mortal sins uh, and they've lost saving grace or justification. And so their souls immediately go into hell. And this is also an eternal state. Yeah. Um, but then third, there's people who die with the stain of forgiven mortal sin, but they're still not free from those venial sins or those lesser sins, if you will. Um, and so what happens to these people? Well, they go to purgatory and this is a temporary state. Now, these people eventually end up in heaven. Uh, and so what they need to do is purge their sins, which is where we get the term purgatory. Yeah. Um, and that eventually end up in heaven is a massive length of time. Could be millions of years. Yeah. 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 Um, support for the view. Uh, this comes out of the Apocrypha in 2 Maccabees 12, uh, 38 to 46. It says, so Judas, having gathered together his army, came into the city of uh, Adalim, and when the seventh day came, they purified themselves according to the custom and kept the Sabbath in that place. The following day, Judas came with his company to take away the bodies of them that were slain and to bury them in with their kinsmen in the sepulchres of their fathers. And they found under the coats of the slain some of the, is it donaries? Donaries. Donaries, um, D-O-N-A-R-I-E-S, if somebody knows, of the idols of Jamnia, which the law forbiddeth to the Jew, so that all plainly saw for this cause they were slain. Then they all blessed the just judgment of the Lord who had discovered the things that were hidden. And so betaking themselves to prayer, they besought him that the sin which had been committed might be forgotten. But the most valiant Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves from sin for as much as they saw before their eyes what had happened because of the sins of those who were slain. And making a gathering, he sent 12,000 drachmas of silver to Jerusalem for sacrifice to be offered for the sins of the dead, thinking well and religiously concerning the resurrection. For if he had not hoped that they had that they who were slain should rise again, it would have seemed superfluous and vain to pray for the dead. 
And because he considered that they had who had fallen asleep with godliness had great grace laid up, laid up for them, it is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from sins. So that that's the that's the big the, one. The big one. Um, and, but they also will do the First Corinthians three fifteen, uh, where it says, "If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." Now that's a misinterpreted passage that the fire speaking of purging souls of people in purgatory. Rather, it's actually addressing the leaders of the church who are not building on Jesus Christ. So it's actually all of the labors that they do that's foolish and not faithful to the foundation, which is Christ. And so it's not even a general, that that uh, whole chapter 3, Bema Seat Judgment, is not one that is being talked about with regard to just your average Christian. It's of the teachers. It's a fascinating passage. Yeah. Another one is Matthew twelve thirty two. This says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So the issue here is concerning that final phrase, either in this age or the age to come. Uh, uh, in that final clause where it says, it shall not be forgiven them either this age or the age to come, Catholic theology exta- extrapolates an implication from that. Um, they say, since blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven in the age to come, they would say, does that not then imply that there is sin, however, that can be forgiven in the age to come? Um, and so as a result, this, this age to come then in their mind must be purgatory since it's a place where sin, sin still needs to be forgiven. Um, but th- this is the result of, again, the problem with Catholic theology, an <laughs> inadequate view of justification. Um, God has already completely cleansed the believer of their sin in Christ. Justification is that judicial declaration of purity. Therefore, it's not a state that we're still seeking to achieve both now or in the intermediate state or state to come. Yeah, it, it really is just a hyperbolic statement of it is – it literally, there is no forgiveness. Speaks to the not, finality of it. Yeah, yeah. Don't think that, well, maybe afterwards we might find respite. He's just simply saying there isn't none. There's none to be found. So very serious. Now, what's some scriptural th- teaching then on that intermediate state? That's what's before us now. So in the Old Testament, both believers and unbelievers went to a place called Sheol, which simply means grave or realm of the dead. Uh, Sheol was understood as a shadowy realm. The term used for people in Sheol were, were called shades. Both the righteous and the wicked went there. Um, in the New Testament, the word is used for Sheol is Hades. Uh, Jesus' teaching regarding the rich man and Lazarus seems to indicate that Jesus understood Hades, or Sheol, was broken up into two parts, one side for the righteous, called Abraham's bosom, and was a place of comfort, and another side for the wicked, which there was a place of torment. While the Old Testament Sheol, or Hades, contained both the righteous and wicked, things have changed since Christ's ascension from the grave. So what happens now? Believers, as disembodied souls, go immediately into the presence of the Lord. While our material aspect is separated from our material, our immaterial, the soul, is brought together with the Lord, and we are now in his presence. So you have passages like 1 Corinthians 5.8. 
We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Or Philippians 1.23, where Paul says, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, talking about death, for that is very much better. Or Luke 24.43, and Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Or finally, Hebrews 12.23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. But actually, the key passage is 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9. Uh, it's, it's a long one, but it's worth hearing. <clears throat> or we know, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, here he's using it as a metaphor for the body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house... We groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall or will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's explicit right there. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether to be at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So as you mentioned, this is the, uh, the key passage. Um, so Paul here describes people in the intermediate state as being unclothed, which, as you said, is a reference to the physical body. Um, but what's interesting is that Paul shudders at this um, yeah. because it's, it's, it's actually abnormal. So in one sense, it is much better than uh, having a joined body and soul together here on earth. Again, verse 8 says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Uh, and then also a statement in 123, which you read earlier, it is much better to be at home with the Lord. But in another sense, when we're disembodied souls with Jesus, Paul says it's still an undesirable state. Before you go on, can I make a off yes. the script? So we ought to do a blog, a, a, blog, a podcast or two, just on that passage so in light of the Many, many ways the, ch pe the Christians, especially in our nation, spend an inordinate amount of time trying to fix the earthly tent. Where Paul would be, in this passage, gives that sense of why. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're here and we want to pl be pleasing to the Lord, not healthy, not well-dressed or something. We just want to be pleasing. But actually, it'd be better to be absent from this body, meaning dead, um, because we're now with the Lord. But even that's not the desirable one, which is what your point is. What we really look forward to is the final day when the body is raised and, and the body and soul is brought together. But I just think about how much time we and money we invest in so many pursuits, not just uh, maintain a strong body so that we can 
like provide for a family or something like that. But this this almost idol of health, anyhow. Yes, no, may, maybe um, something we can talk about. Off. Yeah, there's a lot there, uh, and I do have a lot of thoughts on that too. Um, but uh, what you're saying is the very reason Paul longs for that return of Christ. Um, so, in another sense, he doesn't actually want to go into this what's just called intermediate which, state. Which is fascinating, though. Yeah. Because everyone, oh, we, I want to go to heaven. It's like, I want the, re he wants the return <laughs> of Christ is what he wants. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very <laughs> strange, he seems, yeah, um, manic almost, right? So on the one hand, he wants to go because that's better. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to go because he doesn't want to be unclothed or not have a body. Um, so it's it's a strange complex he has. So how should we think about Paul's mixed feelings? Um, well, in short, the definitive statement is in verse 8, where he just says, it is better to be with Christ. Um, Paul's preference is to be absent from the body so that he can be at home with his Lord. The point of Paul's mixed emotions, though, is to show that what he really wants is to be with Christ, but in his new resurrected body. That's, yeah. that's the final goal, uh, for at that point, all things shall be complete. And that this is one of the great hopes of the Christian faith. It's not just that we get heaven, or it's not, and I don't even want to use the word just, but just that we get to be with Jesus, but it's also that we get our new bodies. Yeah. Um, that sounds so unspiritual, though. You know, yeah. in, in the gospel center kind of world where that's because we're more Gnostic yeah. than we like to admit. Jesus is enough. And it's like, well, Paul says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, I mean, so one of the things that perhaps that's one of those who currently live in a riddled body right now can are the only ones who can fully appreciate it. And I suspect also for Paul, whose body literally was twisted and bent and yeah. scarred and marred, uh, due to his devotion to Christ. Uh, but the new and resurrected body is supposed to be one of the greatest hopes of the Christian. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's 1 Corinthians 15, right? Yeah. Um, incidentally, it is also why Paul didn't try to preserve it either. Um, rather, he was happy to, as he writes in 2 Corinthians 12, he was happy to expend his earthly body for the sake of Christ. And see, that's what I want to pursue is that, 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 that sentence that, wrote. That's what I want to pursue is, why are we investing? To preserve it for what? For what? You're right. I mean, you still don't, now you're so busy going to the gym and doing this and writing blog articles and selling products, but you're still not witnessing. You're still not sharing your faith in Christ. You're still not growing in grace and knowledge of God. You're just this glowing picture of health, but to what end? Uh, yeah. Where he's like, no, my only goal is I'm, I want to run this race so well and hard that I, I literally wear this body out. Yeah, he almost viewed it very utilitarian. This was a tool it, yeah, for which a means. Yeah. God will be honored and the gospel will go forth. Well, go ahead. Well, uh, no, I, I just, yeah, that Second Corinthians, I will gladly spend and be spent, and he says, for your sakes. Yeah. I, and I, I brought that out in my one of my sermons here on Stephan. It's I'm in Act Seven with his speech, and then the stoning of Stephan. But he he from the point that he came to faith to the point he was then appointed to help with overseeing the care of the widows to the his death was very very short time. But it wasn't a waste of time. And I think that we 
tend to think that it's a wasted life, even though we would never utter those words, if you die young in the Lord. It's like, no, the only thing that really matters is did you die well Mm -hmm. in the Lord? You know, you live to be 90 and you are faithful, awesome. You die five minutes after setting foot on some foreign nation to bring the gospel to somebody. It was not wasted. Uh, It's just, I really think it's worth us exploring that. Anyhow, so how about unbelievers? Well, they, as disembodied souls, they're going to go immediately into misery and torment. Well, (laughs) there we go. Uh, While New Testament believers no longer go to Hades because they're now present with Christ, New Testament unbelievers still go to Hades. And there they will wait in torment until they're resurrected at the coming of Christ. So what are they doing at this point? Well, they're not repenting. They're still hating God, uh, presuming that they're uh, accusing him. Presumably, they're accusing him of injustice. Once Christ returns, then Hades will open its doors, and every unbeliever will then be resurrected into a new body, but for the purpose of eternal judgment. So it's not just souls in the lake of fire, but the full totality of the human. Um, Yeah, it's not like they go there right now and they've all of a sudden come to a recognition of, oh, I was wrong the whole time. Um, they're still hating. Oh, him. yeah, gnashing their teeth. And st- you can even hear, they're still crying out, how could a good God yep. do this? Yep. Uh, what Now, once they've been judged, they will be consigned to the lake of fire, which is her final unresting place of torment for all eternity. It is a place where death and Hades itself will then be consigned. So Revelation 20 says this explicitly in 13 to 15. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah. So then what is the believer doing in heaven during the intermediate state? Um, Yeah, someone text me. I think it might have been Tom Guthrie. (laughs) He's like, so what do we do? Are we like playing poker? (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Tom. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, first of all, that would have been tongue in cheek, just so. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> um, these are the kinds of questions pastors get, though. Yeah. Um, first thing that we can say that you're doing is in Second Corinthians five three, you're longing for your new body. That much is clear. Now, what does that mean, and what does that look like? I don't know. Um, but it does indicate that the intermediate state is not joy and heart playing. It's not like, all right, we've, we've arrived. There is still this sense of loss mm-hmm. and like the Revelation one that I'm sure you're going to Or at least incompletion. Yeah. yeah. Well, but in Revelation too, the souls are saying, how long before we see justice? So mm-hmm. there's that awareness yep. that things are still not right. It's a trillion times better, but they're still waiting for the final justice, which is... I think people forget that the lake of fire is where God's righteousness is fully brought to its end because his righteousness is bound up in pouring out his wrath upon his son for his elect, right? But the the righteousness has not yet been met and f- satisfied until the fullness of 
of, of the final judgment. And now they're consigned, and now his wrath is satisfied, if you will. Yeah. Um, well, and it is good to think about it in the opposite way of for the Christian, when you think about the horrors of hell and the permanency of hell and how utterly graceless it truly is and, and all that that means, you realize, wow, that's what he bore on that yeah. cross in my yeah. place. He drank it. Yeah, yep. fully. Amen. Um, so we'll be longing for new bodies, but then second, we'll be eagerly watching with the rest of that. So this is where it gets interesting. The rest of the unseen realm now, the unfolding drama of redemptive history. Um, so Revelation 6, 9 through 11 gives probably the most detail regarding the believer's activity in the intermediate state. So you want to read this passage? Sure. Um, when the lamb broke the fifth seal... I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest. That's a good word. Uh, they should rest for a little while longer. Until the number, this is a frightening part, the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Yeah. So he has his elect unto martyrdom as well. Yeah. Um, so this scene, this is a scene that's taking place uh, during the Great Tribulation. Uh, however, we can draw some observations from it. Um, so first... Um, Verse 10 implies they're, they're experiencing in some way a tension, as you had mentioned earlier, that justice has not yet been fulfilled. Um, and so there's actually an emotion and a longing that's felt. Um, the martyred saints that are crying out, how long? So you experience emotion. And, and a sense of time. Yeah. Um, it's a fascinating passage. The more you pick at it, you're like, wait. Yeah. Um, second of all, they, they, they cry out with a loud voice. Um, so you're like, oh, this is a good observation. So, I thought about this. So while they have no body or vocal cords, in some way they're still able to utter noise. Huh. Um, cool. So they don't have a body, but they got something. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever a disembodied soul does, it and it can be heard. Yeah. Loudly. Right. Um, cool. Good observation, Matt. And then uh, third, yeah. Thanks. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> Uh, uh, third, they utter true things about God. Um, in other words, you could just say they will worship. So notice they say, how long, O Lord, uh, holy and true. So they, they refer to him here with three separate attributes, uh, three things that are true of him. They recognize him as Lord, they recognize him as holy, and they recognize him as true. Um, and they also see him as that righteous judge and avenger of injustice. Um, so he, and he alone is worthy of that work. Hence why now this becomes a cry of praise or worship as well. And then fourth, they will wear a white robe. Again, they have no body and yet some way they possess a body like form. And this is where it starts getting <laughs> a little muddy. You're yeah. like, okay. Um, they don't have their resurrected body yet, yet John is able to see them in this vision. And so they have something. And it's on this something <laughs> that these robes will be worn. 
Now, why is a robe white? Well, it doesn't say, but the sense is that it's to indicate they've been purified in their state and that they're now being preserved to sin no more until they receive their resurrected body. I find this fun because we tend to take much more literally Mm-hmm. A very, it, it's a, a symbolic book, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not all pure symbolism. And by looking at that, it, it, it becomes very intriguing where uh, others would just kind of say, well, this is just all a big metaphor. Right? And yeah. it's like, or not. No, symbols meant to point to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and then you have to think back to the first or second episode <clears throat> we did on um, death and how you're, when you die, your material is being separated from your immaterial. Your, your soul, which has been redeemed, is being separated from that member through which sin is committed. Yeah. Here, that member's gone. Yeah. So they're being preserved to sin no more. Yeah. So they get the white robe indicating yep. they're pure. Yeah. And then their fifth thing is that their primary task then is to rest. And so verse 11, they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. So they've entered into that seventh day. That's a great way of describing it. They've entered into the seventh day rest in which God had been since Genesis 1. There's, there's no longer anything for them to do except watch God unfolding, God's unfolding plan. And that, that wow, talk about front row seat. Right. Um, I did got to be a totally different perspective. <laughs> They're no longer vessels to be used for God's kingdom's expansion. Rather, they're now spectators, and such a privilege that is. And then six, they have a sense of time. Again, they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So it's not just this vague eternity. Time is still present. Yep. Yep. Um, so if that's what's taking place during the tribulation, what are disembodied believers doing before that? Um, well, we don't know. <laughs> Bible just doesn't say. Um, the Revelation 6 passage helps us understand that it will be a real experience in some way. So certainly it's not soul sleep. Um, certainly it's not purgatory uh, or any other false idea. Um Whatever it is, though, it's better than what we're doing now. Yes. Um, We'll be worshiping God in a way he's determined that disembodied believers are to worship him. Um, What does that mean precisely? Well, again, we can't speak to it. The Bible, and here's the point to understand, it's intentionally silent. If God wanted us to know, he would have said so. I I think that that's a huge point, though, Matt, is that we want to speculate on these things because they are intriguing to us, but... There's a reason, and we're not even given the reason. The, there's a reason that God says, I'm, I'm not giving you anymore. Mm-hmm. You just, you don't need to know it. Yeah, why, exactly, why speculate? Um, but we would say it's enough to know um, that it's good and that it's better. And so you will be longing to be clothed or to have your body, but even in that longing, it's in some way better than what you have now um, on your best day. So... For you will you will be with your Lord. So so back to the very beginning. Again, many people think that when believers die, they just go right to heaven. So in one sense, yes. Uh, in another sense, no. <laughs> as yeah. as a disembodied soul, they go to that first heaven, which the Bible says shall pass away. But once they're given their new resurrected body, it will be a body prepared to inhabit the new heavens and new earth. 
Revelation 20. Um, so Revelation 20, I'm sorry, 21, one says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Um, additionally, unbelievers don't immediately go to hell uh, or that lake of fire, rather they go to Sheol or Hades where they await that final judgment and then after which they'll then be cast into that final hell. So, so, so the way you say that then is, if I understood you, is that Hades and hell are not the same. Correct. Yeah, I would agree. And, and we kind of treat them as interchangeable, but they're not. Hades is the Old Testament shield, and it's a, a place of holding, if you will. It's, yeah. it's a prison, yeah. but then they're released from that, joined with their body, and then they're cast into the lake of fire because Hades is cast into the yeah. lake of fire itself. Yeah, and I would just sum it up as in the Old Testament, when you died, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you went to Sheol. Yeah. But it was split into two parts. One side for the yep. righteous called yep. Abraham's bosom and another side which was torment. Uh, now in the New Testament, if you're a believer, you don't go to Abraham's bosom, you go to be with your Lord. Um, now, do you think that paradise is Abraham's bosom or do you think paradise is heaven? Because I, 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 I hold that it... Abraham's bosom, well, and that, okay, you, well, I asked well, a question, so go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, because, I mean, that's what he says to the thief on the cross, right? Right. Today I shall be with you in paradise. See, he hadn't ascended to heaven yet, though. Right. He hadn't been resurrected and ascended. I hold that he went there and preached to victory. To the spirits, right? Yeah, and that he he preached to the— Second Peter? Yeah, yeah, yes. and that he preached to them victory, uh, which is— cruddy for the ones on the wrong side. <laughs> Darn. But on the other side is the rejoicing. And then when on, in his resurrection and ascension, he brought all of them with him, which must have been too cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's Abraham like, yes. <laughs> See you later. Yeah. <laughs> Saka. No, that's wrong. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. So so we, we know this topic provokes... Curiosity uh, creates all kinds of questions. So what we would say is if you do have any, we'd love to hear them, and uh, we'll, we'll try and answer them um, if we can. Um, but next time we'll continue on with eschatology. Uh, but until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue. Uh, don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, review, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. And we don't actually even do Twitter. So I don't know why we keep saying that. But tell a friend.